Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, friends, and welcome to season three of Quit Your Day Job. I am your host, Alicia Fernandez Miranda. In this podcast, you'll learn all about the fascinating jobs that people do, some that you might never have even heard of, as you contemplate your own possibilities. I started this podcast because I've always been fascinated by jobs. I even quit my own day job to spend a year as an intern, and you can read all about it in my new book, My What If Year. It's out now and can be bought everywhere books are sold. Or head over to my website, aliciafmiranda.com, for more info. In these times of quiet quitting and great resignations and loud quitting or whatever, I think more people than ever want to follow their passion. Everyone on this podcast has, and I encourage you to do the same. Hey, everybody. I can't believe we have finally reached the end of season three, in large part because I think I was supposed to finish season three like 10 episodes ago, but I kept meeting such cool people that I wanted to bring into your world. And Joanne Lippman, who's on my podcast today, is no exception. You know, I spent a whole year asking the question, what if? And what Joanne has done with her brand new book, Next, The Power of Reinvention in Life and Work, is talked about what's next. The little tagline at the top of the book says, you can get there from here. And her book is all about advice for that. So Joanne has served as editor-in-chief of USA Today, Condé Nast Portfolio, and the Wall Street Journal's Weekend Journal, leading those organizations to six Pulitzer Prizes. Dubbed Star Editor by CNN, she is author of the number one bestseller, That's What She Said, about closing the gender gap, and co-author of the music memoir, Strings Attached. Her book next is out now. I know you're going to want to read it after this call. And thanks for listening. I'll see you all soon. Okay. Hi, everybody. I am so, so delighted to be here today with Joanne Lippman, who is the author of Next, The Power of Reinvention in Life and Work. And first of all, Joanne, welcome. I'm so happy you're here today. Thanks, Alicia. It's so good to be here with you. This was like the most you know, I don't know if I believe in destiny. I probably do. But if there was like a destiny that I was supposed to get this email from your publicity team, it it was alive and well when I did because your book is all about people who have pivoted in their lives, pivoted in their careers, and it provides some really practical how-tos on how to do that. And my book provides zero practical how-tos, but it <laughs> provides my own story of my own what if year and how I did that. And it's the question that I keep getting asked by people throughout my book tour, you know, how do I do this? What's the first step I should take? I found your advice so refreshing, really easy to follow, and it's just going to be so perfect for this audience. So I just thought this was like, you're the perfect person to have on for my final episode of the season. Excellent. It's fate. We were It is fate. It is fate. Let's just go with it. It's completely fate. So uh, we're going to start out, as I briefed you just 
five seconds ago, so you didn't have any time to prepare, with a really <laughs> quick kind of lightning round. But this is, so it's an easy one for you. I'm, so, I'm throwing you a softball before we get into the hard stuff. I want to know, at a minimum of five, could go more. Actually, you could be less. There's no, no one's going to punish you if you get less than five. <laughs> of jobs that you wanted to do at different parts of your life or that you would want to do that are not your own job. Oh, okay. Well, at different parts of my life, we got to go way back. We can go way back. (laughs) Uh, Because the first thing that I wanted to be was a spy. Uh, Because when I was seven years old, I read a book called Harriet the Spy, which is... Love that book. book. Mm -hmm. I read that. Oh, I'm so glad you've read it, right? I read it, I don't know how many dozens of times, um, starting when I was seven. And Harriet the Spy is, you know, it's about an 11-year-old girl who spies on her neighbors and her family members and her friends and writes it all down in a little composition notebook. And uh, when I first read it, I begged my mom, I want one of those notebooks. And for the next six years, probably, I walked around spying on my big sisters (laughs) (laughs) and my neighbors and my Hebrew school teacher, you name it. I would, I was listening in and I would write it all down. And it was by the time I hit middle school, I realized there actually was a career that uh, was a slightly more productive. True. (laughs) Channeling that, which was journalism. But, but um, in addition to a spy, I also wanted to be an archaeologist. Ooh. Um, that was because I read a book called The Bog People about pickled bog people who were murdered <laughs> in the bogs. And I was fascinated, like middle-aged people. I mean, from the middle ages. From the middle ages, not pickled <laughs> people in middle age. Exactly. <laughs> Very good distinction there to make. Yes, yes. And then the other one I wanted to be was Louisa May Alcott. I wanted to be a novelist, like a fiction Love writer. It. Yes, yes. So uh, obviously I never became any of those things. Not yet but there's still time, isn't there's there? There's still time. There's <laughs> always time to reinvent. That is the whole purpose of my book next. Exactly. Wonderful. And are there any things that you would still like to try your hand at now that you've kind of always dreamed about doing? Oh my goodness. Um, I actually, I always love whatever I'm doing. I always love it the most. And so it's hard to imagine something else right now. Uh, though maybe, you know, doing a podcast like yours, though, that seems like a lot of work. It seems really hard. It is, but very low barrier to entry, actually. All you need is this like $5 mic I have on Amazon and uh, these headphones, and then you're kind of you're kind of good to go to share your thoughts. And I think you would have a lot to say. Um, that is such a good list. I have to ask you if you still have those notebooks from spying on your sisters and if you ever read it to them because I bet you got some really juicy stuff. I got super juicy stuff, but I do (laughs) believe they have been lost to the dustbin of history. It may be better (laughs) that way. It may be better that way for preserving your relationships at least. All right. So you survived the lightning round. It wasn't so bad. Not so bad. Thank you. <laughs> now comes the hard question. Now comes like, the hard. No, are you kidding? I think you know you've been you've been on the on the book promo trail, so I think you've probably been answering these. And and really, your book is such a joy to read that it feels like these are going to come easily to you. And before we dive into your book, I want to know a bit more about the spy slash archaeologist slash <laughs> novelist that didn't happen and how you got to where you are now. Sure, sure. Well, I actually, journalism literally came out of being a spy. So 
<laughs> so I think when, by the time I hit middle school, I realized that, you know, you could channel this into journalism. And I started writing for the school paper and I knew I wanted to be in media of some sort. I didn't actually know what kind of media, but I always loved to write. Mm. And it, what really, what really, when I became a journalist, it was really because um, when I was in college, I was writing for the college paper and I got an internship um, in New York City. I lived in New Jersey. I grew up in the New Jersey suburbs and my dad would commute into New York every day. And my dad, a businessman, he had read the Wall Street Journal every single day from the time before I was born. He had read wow. it every day. It landed on our driveway every day and I never once picked it up. <laughs> <laughs> And then, you know, it looked like this boring. Yeah, not enough pictures in the Wall Street Journal. That's yeah, what I say. Right? But, but on when I was a freshman in college and I had an internship at a magazine in, a, in New York City, and I that summer I commuted into New York City with my dad every day. And this was in the pre iPhone, pre internet era. And I hadn't, I was bored. And so out of sheer boredom, I picked up his Wall Street Journal one day and I was hooked. Absolutely <gasps> hooked. Because I realized that even though the paper at that time was black and white, the writing was so colorful. And then the other thing that I realized was that it made me realize that what it was, you know, these business stories, I realized that companies don't actually do anything. Hmm. People do things. And I realized that every day as I would pick up his paper every day, it was like it was like an amazing serialized television show. It was like, you couldn't wait for the next episode because, you know, some corporate raider was trying to buy a company and it was very colorful. And then, you know, I'd be hanging on edge until like, what happens tomorrow? What happens? Well, and I just fell in love. And also the writing on the front page of the Wall Street Journal was the best journalistic writing I had ever read. And I was like, this is what I want to do someday. Someday I want to work for this paper. And that became my goal. <sighs> And they had an internship, the Wall Street Journal, which still has an internship. Um, and my goal became to get this internship uh, for my junior year in college. And I literally worked toward that and got the internship and loved it. It was everything I imagined and more. And I loved the people and they were so smart and they were, oh, it was just fantastic. And they hired me when I wow. graduated. And I then spent 22 years there. What was your beat? Were you reporting on... Business and finance, what were you kind of focusing yeah, most of your yeah. reporting so, on? I was hired as, you know, right out of college. I knew nothing. I had to learn everything. And so I covered real estate at first, and then I covered insurance. And then I started when I was in my mid-20s, they actually allowed me to start my own column um, on the advertising industry. It was like a brand new thing for the Wall Street Journal at that time. And so I wrote about advertising. And then very early, my... My editor, the top editor of the newspaper, uh, Paul Steiger, who's just a god in the journalism industry, he also created ProPublica, the big investigative mm. outlet. So he was the top editor of the newspaper, and he saw something in me that I did not see in myself, which is, you know, he said, you've got tons of ideas, you're a very fluid writer, you should be an editor. And I was like, I don't want to be an editor. <laughs> Who wants to do that? I love being a reporter. Yeah. And he's like, nope. He said, you know, you're pregnant. I see you gallivanting around. You want to be like, come back and start editing. And I, I kicking and screaming, I came back and started editing after my maternity leave. And I found that I loved it. 
Loved it. I had no idea. No idea. I didn't really know what editing would entail. But as it turns out, it was all my favorite parts. It was, I had a million, I did have a million ideas. I always had tons of ideas and not enough time to execute them all. Mm. Um, So this way I could spread them around to lots of different people and they could write them. And then in terms of the writing process, for me as a writer, and I don't know how you felt when you were writing your book. So for me, writing is, is, is actually hard. I love it, but it's hard. It's mm. like giving birth, right? It's like <laughs> the process is difficult. Less drugs though than when I gave birth, but yes, agree. Mine too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I could have used those drugs though, but anyway. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> but for me, the fun part of writing, like my, my treat to myself is I would struggle over writing something and then I would put it like literally or figuratively into a drawer, like like put it away and then, you know, sleep on it or ignore it for a couple of days. And then when I would take it out again and look at it again, it was suddenly crystal clear, like how to fix it. Mm. And I loved that part. It was like ice cream. It was like dessert for me, that part of it. But that's editing. Right. So I only got to do all the fun parts, the ideas, and then the fixing the the storyline and the editing and the writing of it. And so I, it turned out that I really enjoyed it. I I would I had no idea. So I, I, I am very grateful to Paul, which I still tell him to this day that he dragged me into editing. He saw it. He saw that you were going to be great at it before you even knew, which is like pretty incredible. Well, so the other funny thing is there was another editor there, a guy named Dan Hertzberg, who was one of Paul's deputies. And ultimately I became one of Paul's deputies too. But when I first then went from editing, which I loved, and then to managing people, to, at the Wall Street Journal. Um, so ultimately, I became deputy managing editor, one of Paul's deputies. But when I first became a manager of people, this guy, Dan, who was wonderful, I was a little trepidatious, uh-huh. you know, moving into this other role that I also had never envisioned for myself. And Dan said, don't worry, you're going to be a great manager because you're a great mom. Interesting, but that's really true. I often feel like being a manager is not dissimilar from when my twins were toddlers and they needed to be managed in that way. I felt that I felt that a lot. I felt like I was being a mom at work and a mom at home at home sometimes. That's pretty good advice and also what a nice compliment. It was a lovely compliment, but is also those skills are pretty transferable. That is for sure. Yeah, to pretty much anything. That is incredible. So. Next is not your first book. Tell us a little bit about how you got into doing full book length projects. Yeah, I, well, I had always envisioned from the time I was, you know, uh, so many of my journalist friends wrote books. And so I felt like I was late to the party, honestly, that I hadn't written a book in my <laughs> You know, I was a slacker. So I, I always envisioned writing a book. The My first book, which was actually not at all business related, it was actually a music memoir called Strings Attached. Cool. Uh, which I co-authored with a childhood friend who is a professional violinist with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. But it was a memoir about her father, who was our music teacher, and um, one of those incredibly inspiring teachers. And I just loved, loved the process. Um, I also loved working with my friend, Melanie, Melanie Kapczynski, my co-author. And my second book was, that's what she said, which is... I'm obsessed with that title. (laughs) Yes. That title came from my son, by the way, because I thought my son invented that saying. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a big television watcher. So I didn't realize here in the US, right? It's it's the office. I did. Michael Scott's catchphrase. Yeah. 
I'd never seen the show, but I did know that at dinner, anytime I would say anything like, oh, what a day at work. It was so hard. That's what Oh my God, that's hilarious. And you just thought yourself, okay, that's, that's amazing. (laughs) Anyway, so I thought my son invented it, but I was, I remember I had this aha moment. We were thinking about what would the title be? And I'm like, oh my gosh, first of all, one of the main tenets of that book is the research that shows that when women speak at a meeting, very often nobody seems to hear her until two minutes later, a guy repeats exactly Thank what God. she said. He gets the credit and the women in the room are thinking, wait, she said that first. That's what she said. Mm. So I thought, oh, double meaning. Oh my like God, it works on so many levels. It works on so many levels. And I'm like, I'm reclaiming the joke for us. Yes. Yes, I love it. <laughs> But yeah, but that book grew out of um, the fact that as I did rise up in leadership, because, you know, I'd gone on from the journal to running a and founding Condé Nast Portfolio magazine. And I, as I had kind of risen up in leadership, I would get invited to these leadership conferences, women's leadership conferences. And at these conferences, you know, women, we, we would all share like our experiences at work. And it's, it's like a warm bath. It feels great, mm-hmm. right? To be surrounded by this and so supportive. But at the same time, I got frustrated because men weren't there. And, you know, we're we're talking about stuff we already know about. And I'm like, this is half a conversation. It's only going to get us 50% of the solution. We need men to join us. And then I, I also thought about the men in my own career and in my own life who were incredibly supportive. I mean, all because I grew up in the business press, uh, particularly when I started, um, all of my sources had been men and all, most of my colleagues were men. Yes. Um, all of my mentors were men because at that time it was all men in leadership, uh, but they were all great guys, but sometimes they were clueless. And I thought they're only clueless because we're not sharing with them. Like, yeah. So I wrote that's what she said with the idea that I wanted men to read this, not just women and to, to not wag a finger, but to say, Hey, here's I actually interviewed men who were trying to get it right to say, here's a great example of how we can close the gender gap. That was um, so fascinating. I went, I went in 2016, in my previous incarnation of my career, I went to two back-to-back conferences. It was right after Trump had gotten elected. One was in France, and it was a women's conference. It was the Dovella Economic Forum for Women. And the other one was in London. It was the Milken Summit. And there was a panel on Trump at the women's conference, and it was four women three of them were women of color, talking about what Trump's election was going, what they thought it was going to mean for them and for America. And it was brilliant and completely fascinating. And everybody in the audience was nodding along because, you know, we agreed and we heard them and we were listening. And then there was the almost the exact same panel, except it was four white men at the other summit that I went to. Wow. And they had a, they were talking about what are the economic impacts of Trump's going to be. And I just remember sitting there thinking, why... We need to swap. We need to do like a swap here. Like we need to do like wife swap, but like panel swap. But yeah. it's such a, I mean, just how brilliantly articulated and what a great topic to write a book on. It's completely fascinating. Yeah. I really hear you. And now we have your next book next, yes. which I'm holding up. So you said in your acknowledgments that your kids inspired you to write this book. Um, tell me about the inspiration and where this idea came from. Yeah. So next, for those who haven't read it yet, and I encourage you all to read it, it is, it's a deeply reported guide to navigating change in how we live, how we work, how we lead. It's backed by hundreds of interviews that I did, both with people who had made like major life transitions, either in their career or their lives, and also by a ton of research. I love doing the research, the academic 
kind of research. So I talked to psychologists and neuroscientists and management experts to understand these, these are people who are experts in the process of change. And I wanted to understand like both from the personal side, how do you get through it? Mm. But also from like the understanding of the science behind it, what are the stages? And the reason I wrote it is I actually wrote it for this moment in time. Because we are at, you know, this moment after the pandemic. When it, I started the research at the at the beginning of the pandemic, actually. Okay. So I realized that, you know, in my own family, we were all, like all of us, uh, my kids are now adults and they had their own jobs. And everybody in my family, suddenly we got sent home because we're right. all non-workers, right? So... And it was a it was a moment where ever, I saw everybody around me. We're kind of rethinking, like, am I in the right job? Am I doing the right thing? And where am I going to go from here? Like, when this pandemic is over, what is this new normal going to look like? And I had this aha moment very early on in the pandemic. I literally woke up in, in the middle of the night thinking, you know, this new normal, like, we don't know when the pandemic's going to end, but at some point it will. And none of us there's no guidebook to tell us like, how do we get through this and how do we move beyond it? And I, and I, that day I started doing the reporting. I'm like, I want to understand like this process so I can help people. And, you know, I mean, all politics is local. It's like, I was thinking of myself and my family, but, but, but all of us, I guess it was a global issue that all of us were going to have to figure out what's the new normal and how do we get there? And we did see subsequently during the pandemic, we saw the great resignation and we saw, you know, all during my reporting, I'm seeing the quiet quitting that, you know, people are, and there's still, what's interesting, the pandemic has receded, the, the immediate health crisis has receded, but that urgency to find the new normal, where am I going from here? It seems to be even more urgent than, than it was before. And I, I see it some, you know, the book's been out only a few weeks and I have, I've heard from so many people who are sharing their stories of how they're reprioritizing, rethinking their jobs and yes. trying to figure out what's next. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. So you interviewed so many people as part of this book. How did you decide who to interview? And can you tell me who your favorite interview was that you did? Oh, I had so many favorites. Oh my gosh. I started out by, you know, you start in concentric circles. So I I started, I did a ton of Google search, mm-hmm. lots of Google search for people who had made pivots. Um, I went at, you know, I used social media. I, I went to my alumni magazine from college. Like I really spread the word saying, if you or someone you know of 
has made a big pivot, let me know. And then what I started doing is I started looking for people who had made different kinds of pivots. So people who had switched careers, people who had come back from trauma, people who had come back from terrible failure, uh, people who had life-changing aha moments. Hmm. And then when I talked to the experts, I would also ask them for examples. So I, I really cast a very wide net. But among my favorites, definitely James Patterson would be one. I think most people know of him, right? He's the, you know, Along Came a Spider and the Alex Frost series, right? The mega selling, yeah. globally successful author. And, you know, it it occurred to me, I was, I'd already done months of reporting and I, again, another like lightning bolt moment. I'm like, oh my God, like I actually knew him way back when, when I was a reporter. And uh, so I went back to him. So, so just very briefly, I had um, more than 30 years ago when I was a young reporter and I covered advertising, I was writing about the Burger King campaign one day. So I had to go interview the, the ad executive who ran the Burger King campaign. And I walked in, the ad executive was James Patterson. Oh my God. <laughs> he, it turns out, had been an ad executive. He was in the advertising business for close to 30 years before he actually quit and became a writer. And when I met him, he was ad executive and a struggling writer, struggling writer. Oh he my actually, God. He, um, when I, when I showed up, it was early one morning. I remember I was really bleary eyed and he says to me, Oh, I've been up for hours already. Cause I'm working on a book. And he says, I even got a book published and he hands me this book. <laughs> and I like, I'm like, sure guy. Yeah. Like, yeah. Right. <laughs> you know? and, wow. Great wants to be a writer, the great American novelist. So that book, by the way, I don't remember all the details of the book, but I did go back and dig up the review of that particular book in Kirkus, and the review called it abysmally dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, that's such a good story. He was a struggling writer. And so I went back to him. Uh, when I was working on Next to say, can you walk me through, like, how did you get from there to where you are now? And he did. Wow. Amazing. It's an amazing trajectory. But what was so fascinating to me is the way he described the stages that he went through was almost identical to the stages like that people you haven't heard of, like Mm -hmm. regular people have gone through. And that was one of the real big takeaways in my reporting I I ended up creating um, or reporting, I guess you would say, what I call a reinvention roadmap, because I found that there are these four steps that almost everyone will go through when they are reinventing career, life, business. Um, And they're all very similar. So amazing. James James Patterson was one. He couldn't be more different than another of my favorites, a guy named Chris Donovan, who was a telephone repairman. And Chris Donovan had a had a secret hobby. He was, you know, he grew up in a very working class family. It's in, out in, in Boston. And it's like, you get a job. Like you don't have a career, get a job. Mm. So starting in high school, I think it was, he started working at the phone company as a repairman. And he was in that job for many years. And But he had this secret hobby where he had these wonderful ideas about shoes. And he would draw these very intricate drawings of these imaginary shoes. And uh, he did not share that with anyone. And, you know, he started in high school doing this and he got in trouble with the nuns at Catholic school. And that was the end (laughs) of the play. So he never shared it until he was in his 30s and he met his now husband, 
finally shows him these pictures. And his husband says to him, you know, you have talent. You have wow. actual design talent. And and it was a real struggle for him because he's like, but I need a job, whatever. But anyway, he for years, you know, had this. And then finally, at the age of 50, he got prostate cancer. And he had this kind of come to Jesus moment where he wow. said, like, this is short. And uh, he recuperated fully. Thank you. Thankfully. And he, um, when he did, he took early retirement, went back to design school, and today is a successful shoe designer. That uh, is fantastic. And I love it. But when he walked me through his whole process, it was like the same process James Patterson went through, mm-hmm. the same set of steps and stages. I mean, it was fascinating to me. So, you know, those are two of my favorites, but I have many. Oh my God. I love it. They're I all my it. favorite children. They're everybody's like, favorite. Exactly. Can't choose a favorite. <laughs> Something that came up for me a lot, and I'm sure you have heard throughout the course of your interviews, was this fear of, have I wasted all the time that I've spent on this thing that I was doing up until now? So something that I really struggled with as I was planning for my year of internships, and that I've definitely heard from a lot of people, and I sure, I'm sure you have too, is this fear that we wasted all the time up until this point in doing this other thing. And, uh, you know, I, eventually I came to think about it as, well, that's one, it's a sunk cost. So it's already, you know, I've already done it. But also this idea that maybe it wasn't a waste and those things were transferable. I think when you're telling your career story, it's very easy to kind of look back and make it seem like it was very linear and everything made sense. And, oh, of course, being a telephone repairman was the perfect job to do before being a shoe designer because, I don't know, you're working with your hands. I mean, you know, did you hear that throughout your interviewing? And do you think that, how would you advise somebody who is, they think they want to make a change, but they feel like I've just, I've spent my whole life doing this other thing, whether it's my marriage, whether it's my job, like how, you know, it was it, was it all a waste of time? I love this question because this is one of the things that I found from almost everyone I interviewed was they would say nothing is wasted. So they would look back, even people with extreme career pivots would tell me I use everything, everything from my previous life. So for example, Chris Donovan, who was the telephone repairman and is now a shoe designer, he he gets inspiration from his previous life. He has used pieces like, you know, telephone repair pieces within his design. Cool. Inspiration from junkyards. He said anybody can get inspiration from a beautiful flower, but he uses who he is and his background. Similarly, um, one of my other favorites, one of my other favorite children, there's a farmer who spent his first 30 years as as an economist at J.P. Morgan in London and New York, and now he's a cattle farmer. And he told me that it seems so different, those two things. But what he said is he uses the same skill set, right? He's got to understand how does the business work and what are the finances of the business? And it's running, you know, like what's the supply chain? And so it's it's such a fascinating thing that even people who with the most extreme pivots will tell you that absolutely nothing is wasted. Did you ask people how they knew it was time to make a change and what did you hear most commonly? You know, obviously there are cases of people getting a disease or something sort of external, but for people who I guess made a more proactive change, maybe a change that they had wanted to make, you know, how how did they know it was time? 
Yeah. So what's so fascinating is that almost everyone who made a pivot, they started pivoting before they were consciously aware of that that's what they were going to do. Mm. Right. So, you know, with the example of the the economist who became a farmer, you know, he had it started because he bought a weekend farmhouse, like as a weekend home. And he spent weekends there with his family and over time sort of got drawn into the farming community and how the business worked and how difficult that business was. And it was a challenge. And he learned little by little by little. And it wasn't like he ever planned to become a farmer. And he said, you know, that would be really foolish to say, I quit my job. Now I'm going to be a farmer. Right. But instead, it was something that happened gradually over a period of time. And almost everyone, I mean, James Patterson, who we were just talking about, he wrote almost a dozen books while he was still an ad executive. And it was because he he hadn't found his voice yet, right? He was trying to figure it out. And so almost everyone, by the time they do decide to pivot, actually is further along than they think. And I think that is very encouraging. Uh, I would also say if you're not further along, like if you, if it is a terrible idea to quit your job, if you have zero experience and haven't done it. But I'm serious. I'm serious. It's true. to me, I, I did an event recently and somebody raised their hand and said, when can I say I am a writer? Like, uh, you know, because I'm coming from the banking industry. When can I say I am a writer? And I said, have you written anything yet? And they said, no. <laughs> so not yet, <laughs> but not maybe yet. soon. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I said, you don't have to be paid to be whatever you are next, right? So you can, as a writer, for example, you can write on LinkedIn, create a newsletter on Substack. There's many things you can do, and then you can call yourself a writer. But but um, I, I the advice I give people, first of all, I say move before you move. In other words, don't just quit. Like actually do something and and take action. This is another piece of advice I give people. Don't whatever it is. If you're thinking of switching your career, you know, take a course, shadow someone, do informational interviews with people. There's so many things that you can do. Take a number of unpaid internships throughout the course of the year. Take your unpaid internships <laughs> or paid internships actually. Or whatever, right? But but you know, do so. I, I was I I uh, was talking to somebody yesterday who was a lawyer and he wanted to go into the entertainment industry. So he took an internship uh, as an NBC page. So you know, from from and they looked That's at him awesome. like nuts, but it helped. He made that transition. But do something, right? Take action. Don't just quit. And also, it does take a certain amount of you know, it, it, there is a certain amount of privilege involved here, right? That you mm. need have some sort of financial security. It doesn't mean that you can't do it. Like the telephone repairman I was talking about, like he didn't have the financial security for a long time, but so it took him a long time to become that shoe designer. But, you know, but he did a lot, like all of that practicing drawing and detailing and then going back to school, like all of that was in preparation before he quit for good at at the telephone job. So, you know, so, so there are things that you can do. The other thing is I have a whole chapter in Next on gut feeling because that is one of the very first things that is like, how does it feel? Like, do I really think I should do this? And I, I looked at all the research and the science behind gut feeling and, and conclude that, yes, you should listen to your gut. I am a believer and you should listen to your gut. And the reason is when you look at the research, there's a reason why your gut feels correct. It's not always right, by the way, not always. <laughs> but the, the the gut feeling that feels really right generally is because you have collected this sort of information and experiences mm. and maybe haven't consciously 
thought about it or you haven't consciously put it together, but your brain is sort of working, your brain and your body are sort of working behind your back. They're realizing it before you, before it comes conscious, right? And so that's that's ha- what happens. And that that comes out as this sort of gut feeling. That is so cool. I have never thought about it like that, but it's, it makes a ton of sense. Joanne, I have loved this conversation. You're, I, I typically like to finish these interviews with some advice, but but the advice is go buy this book because this book is full of fantastic advice, as has your interview been. But I think what I want for my final question is, let's say you are standing up at your university alma mater and you're giving the commencement speech. So I can see a lot of people who are at my stage in life, maybe somewhere in the middle or later, who are really appealing to this. But what do you say to a 22-year-old about to go out into the workforce what is your advice for them based on everything you've learned in this book? Oh, that is a great question. So let me let me mention two pieces of advice. So so one is really specifically for for 22-year-olds and this is what I do tell them when I when I talk to them is that they are further along than they think in wherever they are going in that they have a set of skills and experiences that are incredibly valuable. And that's particularly true right now. You know, I have a social media editor. She's 22. She just graduated college. And the reason is that she's grown up as a social native, social media. Mm. That is a skill that I will never have. And um, I will, an experience I'll never have. So they have these experiences that are actually going to be really valuable to their elders that they may not even recognize because it's very innate to them. Well. So that's that's one piece of advice. But another, the second applies to them, but also to the rest of us. And that is to reach out to your sort of wider network of people, as opposed to sort of the people who you just talk to every single day. There's a lot of research that shows that your opportunities are going to be, um, your best opportunities will be surfaced by people who are, uh, you know, a step removed. You're what we call weak ties or dormant ties, people you've lost touch with. And a piece of advice I always give to any audience is, and because you can do this right now, today, as soon as this podcast is over, which is reach out to somebody, a dormant tie, somebody you maybe have lost touch with who has helped you to say thank you, like reconnect, let them know how they have impacted your life in a really positive way. And it's going to make you feel great. It's got like the mental health benefits are amazing. It's going to make that other person, they're going to be walking around on air. And as a side benefit, you know, you're rekindling a connection that that ultimately actually may help you in your own pivot. But the main the main thing is it's going it, to, you will make their day and your own day. And it's just, it's just a fantastic thing to do all around. That is such amazing advice. So we're going to wrap this up so everybody can go email one of their weak ties, dormant contacts. I'll think of who mine are. I think I've emailed everybody I know ever and have ever met <laughs> in the process of promoting my book. So I may not have any dormant contacts left, but I'm going to try to find one. Joanne, thank you so, so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a great conversation. Thanks so much for listening to Quit Your Day Job. We are produced by Zibby Audio and want to send a huge thanks to Zibby Owens, Chelsea Grogan, and the team at Texture Sound for their support. Don't forget to buy your copy of my What If Year, which is out now. You can also sign up for my mailing list on aliciafmiranda.com or find me on Instagram at aliciafmiranda. It's the best place to hear about future podcasts and, of course, memes about Gilmore Girls. And if you decide to quit your day job, 
please share that too. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 